Hey everyone, it's Kevin. So I know it's been a while since we came out with an episode, but after a lot of work, I'm really excited to be able to share this series of episodes with you. So this is the first of four episodes that we'll be releasing, which all deal with the subject of taking carbon dioxide back out of the air. And these episodes will be coming out on Wednesdays over the next several weeks. Now, I first began recording interviews for the series two years ago, and just recently, a couple of things have happened which make this field of direct air capture more exciting and relevant than ever. And I'll be speaking about those developments in a special extra episode at the end of the series. This series of episodes was made possible thanks to funding from Climate Kick. Climate Kick is a European knowledge and innovation community that's working towards a prosperous, inclusive, and carbon-neutral society. Find out more at climate-kick.org. That's climate-kic.org. So, without further ado, here's the first episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, hello. I am recording. Why are we here today, Kevin? So, we're here today because uh, I have something I'd like to, to talk about with you. I'm, I'm intrigued. Why me? So, you are Tony. I am Tony. We're, we are friends. We are friends. You are a journalist and uh, among other things and you know when i when i make this podcast i kind of have people like you in mind really people who are my friends who are maybe theoretically concerned about climate change read the occasional article but you know they haven't changed their lives radically about it they they have concern but they you know they're just an average person so i'm i'm correct in that this describes you yeah i uh, i believe that you know climate change is serious and it's very foreboding, but I still feel a little powerless. Which I think is most people. I, I, I think it you know, is a majority of people that fall into this category. Yeah. Anyway, so there's something I want to tell you about. You know, you feel powerless. There's a lot of difficulties with climate change. Uh, it's this big overwhelming issue. But there are people working on, on solutions. And today there's there's a story that I want to tell you about, which to me, I think is one of the, the coolest things that I've come across in terms of people working on, on climate change solutions. Okay, I'm game. <laughs> Good. But first, one of the main things that I always come away with is that climate change seems really complicated. You know, there's so many different factors at play. There's complex computer models and uncertainties about tipping points. It's about transportation. It's about the economy. It's about politics. You know, there's people discussing if it's capitalism or not. But when you look at it another way, climate change is, is super straightforward. Yeah, we have too much carbon. We have too much carbon. We have simply dumped and continue to dump huge amounts of greenhouse gases into the air, the vast majority of which is a little invisible gas called carbon dioxide. And the reason all this CO2 is being released is because our world is addicted to burning fossil fuels for energy. Worldwide, we humans still get about 80% of our energy from fossil fuels. And all of the CO2 and the extra heat it's trapping on Earth has put us in a, a really huge dilemma. Either we quickly transition off of the fuel source that has literally created the modern world, or we face the consequences of an unstable planet. Yeah, that is a dilemma, <laughs> <laughs> to say the very least. Yeah. Um, so we're in a tough place. This is how David Christian, our guest from the last episode, put it. The crucial thing that happens is obvious. We have to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. But what does that really mean? After all, stopping our use of fossil fuels has proved much easier said than done. Fossil fuels are so deeply embedded in the way the world works at the moment. You know, energy companies are not just going to switch off the tap <laughs> overnight. It's, it's not going to work that way. But. The, the question I've always had, and this really does fascinate me, is like if, if we can do all these really cool things, like move back the ocean in some parts of the world, you know, like to reclaim land, why can't we just suck up this carbon? Like, surely that is possible. Well, there are people wondering that same thing. Um, and that's what we're gonna. That's what you're telling me now. That's what we're. That's what we're looking at today. Ah, there we go. Is that possible? And. Why could it work? Why might it not work? What is the deal? Could we actually make that happen? Okay, as some non-activisty person who cares, I'm intrigued. Yeah? Proceed. Yeah. Okay, because it just might be possible. It might be possible. 
we we already know that carbon dioxide is being taken out of the air all the time by by natural processes, right? So our oceans absorb a lot of carbon dioxide, for example. Uh, of course, so do plants and trees and uh, tiny organisms called phytoplankton. But the thing is, compared to how fast we were releasing CO2 now by burning fossil fuels, these natural processes can't keep up. It's not even close. And in terms of what we humans do, while we've become extremely good at admitting CO2 to the atmosphere, taking carbon dioxide back out, which would be called a, a negative emission, that's something we are less good at. In fact, uh, we're terrible at it. We don't do it at all. Uh, forgive my pun, but I, I would say maybe we suck in that we don't suck. Yes, exactly. We do not suck CO2 <laughs> out of the air. Um, but while we humans basically do nothing yet to produce negative emissions, there is no shortage of ideas of things that we could do to potentially take CO2 back out of the air. And they break down into two main categories. There's two ways of capturing the CO2. You can either do it using plants. The other way you can do it is use uh, chemical means. So that's Tim Flannery. He's a scientist and is the head of the Climate Council in Australia. He wrote a book entirely about negative emissions called Atmosphere of Hope. So we have plant methods where we would grow things like trees specifically to help take CO2 out of the air. And then we have chemical methods where we would use some sort of chemical process to do the same. And between these two categories, there are tons of different proposals. And some of them, Tony, sound pretty outlandish. Okay, give me some of the crazy ones. Well, the craziest sounding one to me is the idea that we would grow gigantic seaweed farms in the middle of the ocean. So what would that look like? The only vision I've been able to kind of come up with for this is true mid-oceanic kelp farms that float below the surface of the ocean. If we'd cover 9% of the world's oceans with those things, uh, we would be sequestering all of human current emissions. It sounds pretty good, right? Yeah, if, if it works, 9%, that's, that's quite a lot though. Yes, it is. So 9% of the world's oceans would literally be an area three times the size of Europe. Ooh. So uh, so easier said than done. And um, the other thing is, we're not even close to having one carbon negative kelp farm yet. Now, there's also the idea that we could use giant coolers to actually freeze carbon dioxide out of the air. Because once it gets cold enough, we're talking like almost minus 80 degrees Celsius, CO2 becomes a solid, right? So if you could get it cold enough, it would actually snow out CO2. And then we could take that frozen CO2 and bury it deep underground. So just like let it in the air, freeze it, and then send it down. Send it down somewhere. Um, but that has a whole bunch of questions and is fairly science fiction. But even the leading idea on how to take carbon dioxide from the air, the one that has been studied the most, it's taken the most seriously, uh, it sounds pretty nuts. It's called Bioenergy Carbon Capture and Sequestration, or BEX for short. So basically what BEX is about is taking biologically captured carbon in the way of trees or grass or vegetation, burning it for energy, and then putting the CO2 that you generate into the ground and storing it in the ground. Um, so did you get that? Mm, what? Okay, so the idea is that we would turn gigantic areas, we're talking up to the size of India, into special farms where we would grow trees or other fast-growing plants not to eat, but so that it can soak up CO2 from the air. Yeah, okay. But then to make sure that the CO2 doesn't go right back into the climate again when these plants decompose, because that process re-releases the CO2 that they had captured, we would harvest these plants, burn them for energy in a power plant, and then capture and bury underground the CO2 that would normally come out of the smokestack. So basically it would go plant, grow, harvest, burn, plant, grow, harvest, burn, over and over and over again. And all of this would be done just to pull back out a small percentage of the emissions we currently put up. Um, my gut feeling is there's going to be some much easier ways of doing that, of storing the CO2 than that. But thankfully, there are also some less wacky ideas out there for removing CO2 from the air. And, um, and I went to check one of them out. Okay, cool. You actually went to chat to a scientist? Yep. And I ended up in Phoenix, Arizona. Cool. Now, the dry, sprawling suburbs of Phoenix, Arizona might not seem like the most obvious spot for finding a solution to climate change, but here is one scientist who's working hard on exactly that. 
His name is Klaus Lachner, and I, I went to meet him. This is Klaus. Klaus Hi, Kevin. nice to meet you. Hi, nice meeting you. Cool. Okay. Um, so, so get you're to my office, yeah? Yeah. Now, Klaus is a professor at Arizona State University and is the director there of something called the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions, where they look at potential ways of pulling CO2 back out of the atmosphere. So he's our guy. He's our guy. He's the guy, some might say. And while he lives and works in America and has been in America for a long time, Klaus grew up in Germany. He's tall and skinny in his 60s, has graying hair. But maybe the most obvious thing about him is his easygoing nature. So when we sat down in his office, uh, this is how he greeted me. Have a cookie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what kind of cookie was it? Well, this was around Christmas time, so the main thing I remember is that it was a Christmas cookie, and it was quite good. Well, well that's important. <laughs> anyway, so Klaus has been working on the possibility of taking carbon dioxide out of the air for a surprisingly long time. In fact, maybe longer than anyone else in the world. Were you one of the first people like, uh, who was actually in a research setting working on, on this? I think that's fair, yeah. I, I probably was the first, I certainly was the first to put it into the carbon sequestration context. What carbon sequestration means is a process where we would not only take carbon dioxide out of the air, but we would also safely dispose of it somewhere, somehow store it, i.e. get rid of it. I don't care how we stop that guy. I only want him stopped. That's all. All right, then leave it to me. So we mentioned the giant kelp farms, right? And Beck's. But what Klaus is working on is something called direct air capture. Is that like just sucking it out of the air? Yeah, essentially. You might picture holding up a vacuum to the air, right? Yeah. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that. So basically, it falls into the chemical category we mentioned earlier. It means that we would use a machine combined with some sort of chemical process to capture carbon dioxide straight out of the air. Uh, you started out by introducing the crazy ones. That one doesn't sound necessarily less crazy. Right. Maybe it sounds a bit too good to be true, right? Yeah. Um, it does. And it might be. But it could also be our ticket to a livable planet. And it's what Klaus has been working on for close to two decades. So the idea is the, the wind can blow through here. And these flat sheets you see here, they are the active material which picks up the CO2. So it's this kind of stuff. But before we get into specifics, it's worth taking a pause to talk about how Klaus ended up working on carbon capture in the first place. Because in many ways, it's super unlikely. Klaus's original background is in theoretical physics. He investigated the strange world of neutrinos, bosons, and other subatomic particles. So if you look up the scientific papers that he's published, you'll see things like the chemistry of free quarks or the decay of the scalar neutrino. But after graduating with his PhD in Germany and doing a postdoc at Caltech, Klaus got a job at Los Alamos, the, uh, the National Research Institute in New Mexico. You might have heard of its name because it's actually where the atomic bomb was first developed. But there they work on all sorts of issues from, uh, from weapons to energy. Oh, wow. And while there at Los Alamos, his research pulled him into a new direction. He started looking at potential ways that the world could meet its energy needs without fossil fuels. Early 90s, I was working on all sorts of energy issues. I was interested in fusion energy and renewable energy. And it was while working on these potential sources of power that Klaus had two important insights. Well, my first realization was how energy dependent we are. As we talked about in our last episode, our world runs on energy. And Klaus realized that if we were to take modern energy away, that our lives would basically go back to a 15th century peasant. But the second thing he realized while studying these alternative energy sources was how great fossil fuels are at fulfilling our energy needs. Sort of like the way a drug is great at making us feel good. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but there was one experience in particular that drove this home to him. I was interested in solar energy and I sort of was mentally laying out solar panels and how big they are. And I wanted something which produces one kilowatt on average. One kilowatt is about the amount of energy you would need to run five large kitchen fridges. And to produce that much energy, Klaus found that you would need about 20 to 40 square meters of solar panels, which would be about the size of six to eight medium-sized cars. But then I realized that my car engine is 100 kilowatt, and it easily fits under my desk. 
In other words, he realized that a small car engine burning gasoline produces 100 times as much energy as a whole array of solar panels, which shows you why fossil fuels are such a great source of energy. Not only do they pack a lot of energy into a small space, but they're also affordable and easy to use. And unlike solar or wind power, you can use fossil fuels for energy exactly when you need it, night or day. And all this together made Klaus realize how hard it will be for the world to give up fossil energy completely. Because it's just so good at what it does. But we have this problem with all the CO2, so we got to figure out how to have this technology and be able to be carbon neutral. So therefore, I said, it's worth really looking at capturing CO2 from the air. That's what got me going. Why did he even think it was possible? I mean, this is before anybody was, was thinking about this. Well, he knew that it was possible at a small scale because manned spaceships and submarines have needed ways of removing carbon dioxide from their sealed chambers for decades now. And I mean, just think about a tree. It's pulling CO2 back, so it must be physically possible. So I knew at that point, it's clearly technically feasible. So then the question was, can you do it affordably? Not to mention at a scale that would actually make a difference for the planet. And on those questions, he wasn't so sure. So like a good scientist, he did some back-of-the-envelope math. He made some assumptions, crunched the numbers, and... To my surprise, honestly, these calculations said there is no serious obstacle. This is not a priori clear that I cannot do it. And, and so I said, this must be feasible. So that's when, in the late 90s, when I got to that point, I was reasonably convinced that from here on out, it's a matter of doing it right. But doing it right is easier said than done. So Klaus might be a theoretical physicist, but at least in one big way, the problem he wants to solve bumps into some very basic challenges with physics. Here's Tim Flannery again. Look, the basic problem is that you're going against the second law of thermodynamics, right? <laughs> Which is, that, you know, we, we start with energy you know, high energy system and gradually it all just gets diffused. Um, so that's a pretty formidable barrier. Uh, so it's been a long time since I've read uh, physics or done physics, but once you use the word law, that sounds pretty insurmountable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So luckily we don't need to go into the specifics of thermodynamics, but it is helpful to understand why this is potentially hard to keep in mind what is actually happening when we take fossil fuels and burn them for energy. Okay. So imagine that you and I are having a barbecue outside, right? And we're using some coal to do our grilling. Okay. Now, coal is a fossil fuel just like oil or gasoline. And fossil fuels are essentially hydrocarbons, which just means that they're made up of molecules of hydrogen and carbon atoms that are bonded together. Hydrocarbons store a lot of chemical energy. That's why we like fossil fuels. And when we burn hydrocarbons like coal, we're releasing some of that chemical energy in the form of heat. This is energy we can use to warm ourselves by the fire, drive a car, churn a big steam turbine, or in our case, grill some burgers. Grilling those tofu burgers. <laughs> but the thing to understand is that by burning the coal, what we're releasing is a chemical reaction take place. The hydrogen and carbon atoms that were bonded together inside the coal are being ripped apart and recombining themselves with oxygen that's in the air. And so for every little atom of carbon that was packed tightly into our coal is now a molecule of carbon dioxide spreading out through the atmosphere. In a day or two, those separate little molecules from our barbecue could be floating anywhere from over Moscow to the Sahara Desert. So in physics speak, what we've done is raise the entropy, or the amount of disorder in our system. In other words, it's kind of like we're at the World Cup final on a windy day, and we're throwing wads of confetti into the air. You know, the, the first part is fun. Throwing confetti is fun. But if you're, if you're the guy who has to clean that up, less cool. Exactly. And if you wanted to clean up all those tiny little pieces after the fact, well, that would take energy. And it's the same for carbon dioxide. Cleaning up after ourselves nearly always requires energy because you raised entropy by just dumping things where you had no business dumping them. And in order to fix it later, you end up spending some energy. In fact, some scientists have argued that it would take so much energy to collect carbon dioxide after it's become so dilute that it would never be possible to make carbon capture practically work. What they say is if you want the CO2 back, you spend more energy much more energy than you ever got out in the first place. 
That is by burning the fossil fuels and creating the CO2. Plus, if most of our energy is still coming from fossil fuels, then we haven't really solved our problem. So the first challenge is energy. The second challenge is the scale of the problem, the awesome scale of this issue. You see, we put a lot of carbon dioxide into the air. This is the thing people don't understand, you know. And to understand that, we have to think, what are we putting into the air at the moment? So we know we're putting in CO2, but I suppose the question is, how much? Yeah. Any any guesses? I, I have no idea, but I know that it's probably some unwieldy amount. Yeah. So each year, we put up about 40 billion tons of CO2 into the air. Uh, every year, we put that in. And, and that's, I take it, way too much? Well, it is a lot. Here's Tim Flannery again. So let's do an experiment with ourselves. Let's say, okay, let's take just 10% of that out using a technology that we all understand, an approach we all understand, planting trees. So ask yourself, how big an area would you need to plant with forest if you wanted to take out just 10% of current annual human emissions? Do you have a, do you have a guess? Well, I... <laughs> I take it by the way your eyebrows are hovering above your eyes that it's a lot. I have no idea. It's maybe something the size of the Amazon rainforest? I'm afraid it's even bigger. It's actually you need to cover North America with forest and plant it at the rate of a United Kingdom every year for 50 years and keep that forest vibrant and growing to take out just 10% of what we currently put in. Gosh, that's not significant. Right. And as he said, that's just for 10%. Plus, people need to live and get their food from somewhere. But it gives you a sense of the scale of the problem that we're dealing with. So when we talk about just taking out what we put in every year, it's a very formidable proposition. Now, the desert of Arizona isn't a good place to be planting trees. But Klaus never even seriously considered trees as an option. For him, given the size of the problem, it was always clear that we would have to turn to a machine of some sort in order to really get something done. So I, I actually asked myself, why not just use trees? We could do that, uh, and it would work. And it's a little bit like asking, why not pull that plow with a horse? Of course it works, right? But the tractor is much better at it. So when Klaus Lackner started out, he was facing these two problems. The energy needed to collect the CO2 after it's become so spread out, and the sheer scale of how much carbon dioxide we put up each year. So could we actually make a machine that would capture carbon dioxide out of the air at a scale that would make a difference? That's the, the big question. And that's what Klaus is trying to figure out a way to do. So how, how would the actual details of a direct air capture uh, thingamajiggy that you mentioned actually work? Well, say that we do want to make a machine that takes carbon dioxide out of the air. Our first challenge is how do we grab onto it? Because as we said, carbon dioxide, once it's in the air around us, it's super dilute. CO2 only makes up only one out of every 2,500 gas molecules in the air. So we're looking for a bunch of lonely microscopic molecules whizzing around in a much bigger ocean of gas. A needle in the haystack, basically. So the first thing that you need to make this work is a material. One that really likes carbon dioxide, but that will leave the rest of the air alone. Just like how a magnet grabs onto particular metals or Velcro holds onto some fabrics. So just like a really clever glue. Exactly. We need a clever glue. Now, thankfully, with carbon dioxide, we do have these glues, and they come in the form of certain chemicals. They're chemicals with names like calcium hydroxide, sodium hydroxide, as well as compounds called amines. If you leave these chemicals out in the open, eventually molecules of CO2 will stick to or bind with them. And the reason that these glues are able to work is because they react chemically with carbon dioxide. You with me so far? Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of picturing like those things that attract flies, uh, like those big nets where it just takes a while for it to fill up with, with, with the flies, but it's pretty disgusting when it does. Right, so it only catches flies. And that's the same thing with our, our carbon dioxide glue. So now this is going to get a bit nerdy. Uh, get nerdy this is where it starts getting <laughs> nerdy then <laughs> okay <laughs> but the important thing to know is that in order for these chemical reactions to happen spontaneously the reactions have to give off energy which means if you have a material that binds co2 and takes it out of the air the only way it can bind the co2 is that there is energy released when it does so a typical sorbent 
when you bind CO2 will warm up and maybe very slowly and hardly noticeable because the air just carries it away but there is heat release there's energy release that's how it could bind so we have a chemical glue that grabs carbon dioxide from the air but the trick is that's just the first step of how any direct air capture machine would work because to make our machine be practical we'll need to reuse the chemical we're using our fly trap of co2 over and over again otherwise there just wouldn't be enough of it to go around and in order to be able to reuse our carbon dioxide glue we need to somehow get the co2 back off so Think of this process naturally having two steps. I will have some absorber, some material which binds CO2. I expose it to the air. Now it's loaded up with CO2. Then I take it into a separate room and I say, now I have to get the CO2 back off so that I can do it again. And to get the CO2 back off, to unstick it, that's the harder part. That's the part that will cost us energy. So you have to put energy in, in order to get it back off. And how do you do that? How do you put energy in? Well, the, the most common way is to just add heat. So the typical sorbent, you heat up in order to get the CO2 back off. So say you have a material that absorbs CO2 at room temperature. If you go to 100 degrees or 150 degrees C, or in some cases 800 or 900 degrees C, then the process turns around and you push the CO2 off again. Okay, so it's like we have a duster and we've dusted our apartment and then we get a way of, of getting the dust off of it. We put it all in one place and then we and then we dispose of it. Right, and we can reuse our duster again. Yeah. And ideally, you want a material that carbon dioxide sticks to easily, but that doesn't bind with it so strongly that you have to spend a lot of energy to push it back off. Mm -hmm. That makes sense, because otherwise you're not making a net dent. Because if you're spending more energy getting it off, it's counterproductive. Yeah, exactly. So this is like finding a glue is one of the, the central elements, the key parts of making a direct air capture machine actually feasible. So after Klaus first realized that capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere could be possible, he started searching for the right absorbing material, what he would use as his glue. And I should mention that soon after he started on this journey, Klaus started working with a, a collaborator, Alan Wright. Hey, Alan. Hi, Klaus. How you oh, doing? That's good. And so, uh, who is this? Alan Wright. Wright as in the, the Wright brothers? Wright as in the Wright brothers. That's correct. Any relation? Indeed, yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. A few cousins removed and whatnot, but yeah, there is a link. Klaus and Alan first met back in the 90s at a project in Tucson, Arizona called Biosphere 2. It's this futuristic-looking complex that was originally built to study the viability of creating biological systems that would be completely isolated from the outside world, the type of systems that might be used for deep space travel or for settling on Mars. So Alan worked at Biosphere 2, and he was the guy there who could engineer almost anything. He could put things together, and he was the go-to person if things from a mechanical end didn't work. So all the scientists who wanted the craziest things done, Alan was the guy to do it. Soon Klaus started talking with Alan about his interest in capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and together they came up with a plan. It was agreed that Alan would form a company in Tucson to demonstrate that air capture is feasible. The business was registered under Alan's name and opened its doors in 2004. They named it GRT. Global Research Technologies. You, you didn't want to really say what he was doing, so he came up with a very nondescript name. <laughs> Sounds like a shell company. <laughs> exactly. So in these early years of their collaboration, to prove that air capture was feasible, Klaus and Allen began looking for their chemical glue that would capture CO2. They started off from basics, using chemicals dissolved in water. The first chemical they tried was something called calcium hydroxide. And while it did absorb carbon dioxide from the air, it came with a host of other problems. So then they tried something called sodium hydroxide. They played around with that chemical solution for another couple of years, but found that using it was also very problematic. It was messy. It's a nasty thing if you have solids precipitating everywhere. And it was also extremely hazardous to work with. Klaus was starting to think, though, that using liquid chemicals as their absorber was not only just too messy, it was also slowing the process down. So they were looking for something new. 
and we happen to have this material which is uh is it, this is it this is it right this is actually from those days yeah at this point klaus grabbed something white and fabricy looking from a shelf maybe a bit bigger than a cell phone and handed it to me and this material is a what you feel is a polypropylene and there is this resin material embedded into it basically it's a plastic sheet and the sheet has within it countless tiny balls of resin this resin can grab onto charged particles and because of that it's often used for chemical filtration and for things like purifying water and these resin sheets were something that they had lying around their lab because they were planning on using them for a completely unrelated experiment because we wanted to test something else but they knew that this resin could be used so that theoretically it should behave a lot like the sodium hydroxide solution that they had been working with except it would be in solid form which Klaus thought would not only be cleaner but it could help speed up the process this being a solid sheet creates a rough surface so i argued it has to be faster because there's lots more nooks and crannies where you can get stuck with like the air is kind of interacting with the material right So their initial goal was simply to show that they could speed up the reaction by using a solid. And so what they did is they started cutting these resin sheets up into strands and stitching them together into different shapes, basically trying to maximize the surface area, like a CO2 fighting quilt. Yeah, exactly. Um and so the first shape they tried, the one that they showed me in the office, looks almost like um kind of like a pine tree leaf or in this particular form we decided to make it like that because we wanted to stand passively in the air so that that tree analogy for us was quite real and they found that working with this solid material as their glue did improve the speed of the process and sure enough it was 15 times as fast so that was very pleasant but the longer we measured it the more we found that it behaved differently than we expected 15 times that's really respectable. Yeah. So it was exciting. But like Klaus mentioned, they were also getting back data that just didn't make any sense to them. So to hear about what happened next at this point, we had to just down the hall from Klaus's office to visit the lab. So this is the lab where you guys yep. do most of your work? This is. Yep. Hi. Hi. And so can you tell me about actually discovering this material then and and discovering that this process happened you mentioned you were here in Arizona we were in Tucson and there's a device up there on top of that cabinet looks like a bell jar this particular bell jar we use to measure things it's just a glass container that's kind of in the shape of a bell it's a common device used in labs around the world for doing experiments in Anyway, they were using this jar as a closed vessel to test their resin material in. And so what they would do is they would put a sample of their resin inside the jar, pump the bell jar full of CO2, and study how the resin and the CO2 interacted. But something was about to happen that would set them on a whole new course. One day, we had done a whole bunch of experiments on a Friday afternoon, and Klaus said to Alan, "You know, before calling it a day, why don't we just take the bell jar, put some fresh resin inside?" pump it full of CO2 for the night and see where it lands in the morning. It's kind of like if they had a sponge that they put into a pail of water in order to see how much water their sponge could absorb. So Klaus and Allen injected the bell jar so that it had a huge amount of CO2 in it, 20,000 parts per million, and they left it overnight with their resin material inside to see what would happen. The next morning when they came back to the office and checked on it, the monitor showed that the concentration of CO2 in the jar had dropped by 94% from 20,000 down to 1200 parts per million, meaning that their resin material had absorbed all the rest of the CO2, which is impressive. That's like first prize, right? Yeah. It showed that their material was was working well. And when they looked at the computer graph of the CO2 levels in the jar overnight, the reaction had finished by 2 or 3 in the morning. Right? And so I mean, it was sitting at 1200 ppm because now it was in equilibrium. It had as much CO2 as it wanted and it couldn't take any more. Now, they had a bunch of other experiments planned for the day, but before they got to them, Klaus wanted to check one last thing. The air in their lab, like the atmosphere around all of us, had roughly 400 parts per million of CO2 in it, or ppm for short. which means that even though their resin material had absorbed most of the CO2 that they had pumped into the jar, the concentration of carbon dioxide in the jar was still 3 times higher than just the regular air in the lab. Because of this, Klaus assumed that if he shook out the bell jar and filled it with fresh air from the lab and then covered the resin again, 
that the resin would release some of the CO2 it had trapped overnight. And my reasoning was if I put fresh air in there, well, then it will have to give off a little bit of CO2 because that air has less CO2. So, so it has it, to come back in equilibrium. It has to come back to equilibrium. But I wanted to know whether that's at 1100 or at 1199. Right? That's what I was curious about. It's just like with our sponge example from earlier. So if we drained out all of the water from the pail our sponge had been sitting in, we would expect the sponge to leak out some of the water that it had absorbed. And it's the same here with our resin and CO2. And so Close just wanted to know how much of the CO2 that their resin had captured would it now give off. And I remember saying to Alan, I'm just curious, will it go all the way up or fall a little short? And so we said, oh, let's just try this. So they picked up their bell jar, shook out the air, and put it back down on the resin. And they waited to see what would happen to the CO2 levels inside. So we opened it up, put it back down. It's at 400 ppm. I remember saying, now watch it. It's going to go up. And for a minute, nothing happened. And then it went down. Meaning that the resin material was absorbing even more CO2. I sort of stretched my head and said, it, it can't go down. It, it just can't do that. What is it doing? And that was it for the experiments for that day, because <laughs> we weren't doing a thing until we figured that one out. Something wasn't adding up. The resin had just done something that should have been impossible, binding with even more CO2 after it should have already absorbed as much as it possibly could have. It would be as if our sponge in the container full of water, after the water was drained, instead of leaking out some of its water, actually started absorbing the tiny bit of water left at the bottom of the container. So, <laughs> so I said, there has to be a hidden variable. There's something else I changed by opening it. And whatever that was... Whatever they had changed, it had made the resin material want... More CO2. So this was a complete mystery to them both. So they racked their brains trying to figure out what could have caused this. And I started thinking about it, is that the only other thing I could have possibly changed is the humidity. In order to keep their resin samples clean for the experiments, they had always washed them really well with water. So the assumption was they are probably pretty wet. And so we had tested the material in its wet state. And simply by opening it up and closing it again, we made it a little drier. So just by putting fresh, dry Arizona air in the bell jar, they had caused the resin to dry a bit. And that small change in its condition was enough for it to pick up more CO2. Okay, but I'm still not clear on what that exactly means. So, so what they figured out by this lucky accident was that their resin's ability to absorb CO2 depended on how wet it is. Turns out when their resin is dry, it really likes to grab onto CO2. And when it's wet, it releases it again. It would be as if Velcro grabbed onto fabric when it's dry and released it when it's wet. Klaus didn't even think that this should be possible. To him, it made no sense that the ability of the resin to grab and release CO2 should be changed by just how wet it is. It was actually to the point that first I asked, how come this is not violating the laws of physics? But they did more experiments with the material throughout the day, and all their tests seemed to confirm it was true. This was how it behaved. And so by evening that day, we had that pretty well documented. And then we understood that we had something new. But I think it took us another three or four weeks before we really grasped how important that is. Okay, I don't think I fully, fully grasped how important that is yet. Well, remember that in order to make a usable carbon capture machine, you need to be able to push the CO2 back off whatever you're using to absorb it. And up until now, they had always needed a lot of energy to do that. So what this meant is the thing that they always thought would cost them a huge part of the energy they would need to capture CO2 could be done by just making the material wet. Now the separation technology went from energy intensive electrodialysis to hose it down. That was for us the breakthrough because that allowed us to do things with very little energy. So we suddenly had a system where if we are out in the dry air, it loads up with CO2. And if we put it in a closed container and make it wet, it gives it back. Okay, that really is cool. So it just comes down to water. Yeah. So, I mean, it seemed almost too good to be true. Like they were getting free energy, which is why it caught Klaus so off guard. 
But it works because when the resin dries again after they make it wet, it's evaporating water, and that evaporation releases energy. It's, uh, it's actually the same principle behind how we're cooled on a hot day by sweating. That's exactly the same thing, right? You, your metabolism produces heat, right? And you need to get rid of that heat, and you can help it along by perspiring, and the moisture which you then have as it evaporates cools you. Right? So in effect, we are doing something like that. By evaporating water, we harness energy, which comes from that evaporation. So then we had this material, and now in a dry climate, you have an enormous power to collect CO2 without spending any significant amount of energy. Right? And we pay it by evaporating water. So it's the age-old story of Eureka, where you're looking for one thing and then you find something else. That's how science works, right? Yeah, it's certainly often the case. In a way, it was lucky that we found it, but sometimes there's a little bit more than luck because you notice something funny happens, right? And <laughs> it was lucky that it was there, but we also noticed that. And on our way out of the lab, they mentioned one last cool thing about this discovery. The uh, interesting twist to that story is, had we not been in Tucson, where it's so bloody dry, we may never have noticed that phenomenon. Right. So. In New York, on a muggy day, you wouldn't have seen it. Did you uh, hurriedly ca uh, call all of your collaborators or your friends and tell them about uh, what you discovered? Well, at that point, we were a for-profit company. So, so you had to keep it a secret. We called the patent attorney first thing we did. <laughs> So nature is having the last laugh again, uh, <laughs> still teaching us the coolest things. Yeah, I mean, it was a really cool discovery. It was a powerful discovery. And did you get to see the resin in action yourself? Yeah, so I mean, that was what I was curious about at this point. So um, they found this great material, so I, I wanted to see how it would behave myself. In the lab, they showed me a few other form factors of this resin that they had designed. So, you know, they'd stitched it up into various shapes. So this is another, another example of that same material in a different form factor. So we have many different varieties. Yeah, so this, what you're holding now, it looks like a shag carpeting from the 70s or something? Yeah, exactly right. Like you'd have on the Love. dashboard of your car. <laughs> <laughs> and this one, maybe more like a storage module or yeah. something? Or like yeah. A, yeah. a Japanese hotel? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very small, though. <laughs> I've not been to Japan. What do you mean? <laughs> oh, well, th this other shape was kind of just like a cube box with a bunch of tiny slots in it. Yeah. And each slot was made out of the material. Anyways, in the lab, they have this glass container. It's rectangular and is about the size of a pretty big fish aquarium. And this is a little plant, Seymour, <laughs> who lives in here. So why would they have a plant in there? I thought a plant was like the competition uh, CO2 capturer. Yeah, well, they use the plant in this container as a way to give themselves a, a miniature humid system to test their material in. It's a, a little greenhouse. It's completely sealed and it has lights. So photosynthesis is working and it's very moist in there because plants give off water. So two and a half percent of the gas in there is water vapor. And that's just about water saturated, whereas here in the room, it's quite dry in here. And our plant, Seymour, has been doing what plants do and absorbing the CO2 that's in the greenhouse. They called it Seymour? That's so cool. <laughs> Feed I, me. Is that a reference to something? I don't know. Ah, yeah. Little Shabaharas. I don't know what that is. Little Shabaharas is a, is a great uh, musical, and, and the plant... Uh, eats the guy, and the guy's name is Seymour. And okay. there's a famous song called Feed Me Seymour. Feed me Seymour, feed, feed me. me. Does it have to be mine? Feed me. Where am I supposed to get So Seymour has been doing what, what plants do, uh, this time not eating humans, but absorbing the CO2 that's in this small miniature greenhouse. And he has eaten most of the CO2 because he's down to 271 parts per million in there right now. So at this point, the greenhouse has quite low levels of CO2 in it, right? It's less CO2 than the air has in the office. At this point, Klaus picked up from beside the greenhouse a bit of the resin material, that the one that they had stitched together to look like a, a shag carpet. So it had been sitting there in the lab, and just by being there in this dry environment, it had picked up some CO2 from the air. So this little bit of rug 
has picked up CO2 in the room because it's dry. It has a high affinity for CO2 when it's dry. And Alan, if you want to put it in there, sure. we can, we can, because he's faster at it than I am. <laughs> so the idea is that this material will move from the dry lab to a moist greenhouse. So it's going to see a change in its humidity. So something is going to happen. We don't know what. <laughs> So this is when they show me the magic of this material in action. So they sealed the carpet inside this moist greenhouse and directly beside it on a little computer screen with a graph, we could watch the CO2 concentrations inside. It's already started. This number should start to go up. So it started at, uh, I think 270 and then we're, we're already at 280 parts per million of yes. CO2. So it's re releasing CO2, but gaining water. Right. And you don't need to do anything else. And this is sort of shows how how cost-effective this can be because the stuff is not all that expensive either. And you can do this hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands of times with this stuff because nothing much happens to it. So we got to a point where this thing has sucked all the CO2 it, it wanted and we're trying to get it to release and the, and the water vapor is getting it to do that. So like success, right? Yeah. And sure enough, when we came back a bit later, the carpet had released all of its CO2 and uh, the greenhouse was at just under 1,000 ppm or parts per million. Also in the lab, they have uh, a more scalable design of, of this resin material, a version that could be turned into a machine. So remember the, the little Japanese hotel module thing, the little square? Yeah. So they have a version of that where they can actually dunk it in water. So here's the idea how to scale this up. And we actually have a shop where we are working on it. So we can show you this right here, sort of as a, as a one cube at a time version, this will be hundreds of cubes or if it gets really big thousands of cubes and the idea is like a sail it hangs sort of in the in the wind right and it now loads up with co2 and then the idea is we actually flood it with water then we drain the water back out and then it will release the co2 so now it's dry and, and full it's of dry CO2. and full of co2 and if i press this button it's going down into it's a box. going into the box and this is simply to make it wet Right, and, uh, and you notice the CO2 is starting to get up. So this number that we're looking at, 0.12, this is 0.13 now, this is the CO2 content? That's the CO2 concentration in this chamber. In percent. In percent. Whereas over there you saw PPM. Then in there we might get to about two, three percent. Okay, so they have this material in the lab and it sounds like it's doing the things it's supposed to be doing. But how does this turn into a real-world solution that actually you know, fixes our problems? Well, there's a few steps to go from what I just saw in the lab to a real-world scenario where direct air capture is actually helping to solve our problems with climate change. But remember the major thing of what makes capturing CO2 from the air so difficult is how dilute it is. We're trying to collect loose strands of confetti that are spread out over a gigantic area. And the step they just did in the lab with just a bit of water is what many engineers thought one of the biggest obstacles to air capture would be. But now, with this material, in combination with a process where it would be left outside in a dry environment and then put in a sealed container and made wet, they have an easy way to grab onto CO2 from the air and concentrate it over and over and over again and spend very little energy in the process. Right, so we like the dry air. It binds the CO2, then we put it in a box, make it wet, it releases the CO2 at 100 times higher pressure, 100 times higher concentration. We collect it, we process it on. Then the resin, which now has water on it, goes back out into the, into the atmosphere, and it just like a towel on a clothesline, it dries and picks up CO2 again. And that's the underlying cycle. Ah. So what would be the next steps then? So if they were actually to build a full-size machine, after this first step where they, you know, dunk their material in water and it releases the CO2 it captured, they would be left with a, a gas mixture that's a combination of carbon dioxide and water vapor. And then by compressing this gas mixture that results, they can condense out the water and then end up with just pure CO2. This is something that they've already done. And it worked just fine. We made two atmospheres of CO2. We also compressed it literally by hand with a, <laughs> with a hand pump from low pressure to high pressure. And yes, you can do all of that. So the, the fact that it can be done, I think by now we have demonstrated. 
So at least in this tiny, tiny way, carbon capture has all been proven. They've done it. And so have others using different techniques. Strictly speaking, there is no technical obstacle to capturing carbon dioxide out of the thin air. It can be done. And once you have CO2 in its pure form, you have the possibility of using it, storing it, or disposing of it somewhere. In science speak, sequestering it. And this is probably where a catch comes in? Yes. Because the question of if what Klaus and Alan just showed me in the lab can practically help us in our fight against climate change is a different question. And that's what we're going to be looking at in our next episode. The challenges that remain to getting air capture to actually play a big part of the solution. Cool. I hope you'll join us then. We'll be back in one week's time. This series of episodes was made possible thanks to funding from Climate Kick. Climate Kick is a European knowledge and innovation community that's working towards a prosperous, inclusive, and carbon neutral society. Stopping global temperatures from rising more than two degrees requires unprecedented changes. It requires new social dynamics, new ways of doing business, and new ways of living. While no one organization can tackle climate change alone, Climate Kick helps catalyze the rapid innovation needed across society by supporting climate-positive entrepreneurship, research, and education. It gathers the brightest minds together to help learn about and tackle climate challenges, and also provides mentoring and seed funding to the most promising climate-positive businesses. To learn more about the opportunities and resources that Climate Kick provides, and to see if one might be a fit for you, head to climate-kick.org. That's climate-kic.org. This episode was hosted and produced by myself, Kevin Kaners, and co-hosted by Tony Andrews. Additional production and story editing help came from Charlotta Lomas, Christina Peters, and Tony Andrews. The founding producer of The Elephant is Matthias Gutz, and The Elephant was first supported with funding from the Climate Kick Alumni Association. Special thanks to Dominic Hofstetter, Jakob Busman, and the entire Climate Kick community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in one week's time.